Svalbard, Norway. Many of you might be hearing the name of this town for the first time in your lives, but it is here that I want to begin this fascinating episode. Svalbard is among the northernmost places that human beings inhabit on the planet. A small, nondescript town located at the corner of Norway, tucked away near the North Pole and quite far away from the general hullabaloo that those of us closer to the equator involve ourselves in. Temperatures here plummet to a chilling minus 46 degrees Celsius. And the summers in Svalbard aren't any less curious. While the sun manages to stay up for all of the 24 hours in the day, temperatures still usually hover around 3 to 7 degrees Celsius. Not ideal for even the heaviest of sleepers. In fact, this tiny town is inhabited by just 2,500 people. And for most parts of the year, Svalbard has a fairly deserted look to it. So how then did the Prime Minister of India, sitting here in India thousands and thousands of kilometers away from Svalbard, happen to mention this seemingly far-off place in one of his speeches in November 2020? It's a fascinating, fascinating story, actually. You see, in an abandoned, decommissioned mine in Svalbard, there is today a rather unique monument called the Arctic World Archives. This is a monument that dedicates itself to, and I quote them here, preserving the world's memories. Rare and precious items from world history are stored here to ensure that they are never tampered with or destroyed in the event of any adverse disaster. They'd also, therefore, be available for future generations to study them. Stored here are pieces of history that we consider integral to our understanding of humankind, markers that are representative of the time we've spent on this planet. The Vatican Library, for example, has chosen to deposit more than 500 ancient manuscripts here, including a rare page of the Holy Quran, written by hand more than a thousand years ago. But coming back to Prime Minister Modi, what piqued the Prime Minister's interest was a piece of India's history that everyone believed was nearly destroyed and forgotten by even the most erudite art scholars. This is a series of paintings that were originally painted on the walls of the Ajanta Caves in the 5th and 2nd century BCE. Paintings that depicted details of Lord Buddha's life and stories from the Jataka tales in stunning and vivid detail. Okay, so what has this got to do with Svalbard? Well, in the archives in Svalbard, these Ajanta paintings have been given an additional lease of life. Yes, you heard that right. These paintings are stored at the Svalbard archives behind high-density QR codes and repurposed photosensitive film. What this means is that they cannot be destroyed by forces in the outside world. In other words, a few of the tattered and nearly destroyed Ajanta cave paintings have come alive again in the Svalbard archives. How? Well, Thanks to artificial intelligence, of course. I'll tell you all about it in just a bit. 
From ATS Studio and Microsoft India, this is Paradigm Shift. Stories of innovation shaped by intelligence. I'm Harsha Bhogli. This art uh, is, uh, well, beginning with the paintings of the 2nd century BCE, which are so advanced, which are so remarkable, which are so beautiful. This is Binoy K. Behl, an art historian, photographer and filmmaker, and the first man to capture the Ajanta paintings on camera. Oh, how wonderful it was to see that by that early period of time, these paintings already had glances, expressions, even the inward look, the inward look which is the hallmark of the finest art of India, is already there in the 2nd century BC paintings. It is absolutely remarkable. You can hear the passion with which he talks about these paintings. Paintings that he argues provide a beautiful portrait of the kind of vibrant culture that flourished on this land thousands and thousands of years ago. But more than that and most of all, these paintings were so important and so beautiful because of the vision of life which they contained. A vision of life which sees the same in all of us, which sees the same in human beings, animals, flowers, birds, all that there is around us. And obviously, there is a great sense of compassion which this imparts to the uh, uh, hand of the painter. So these remarkable paintings are full of the most wonderful expression that you can imagine. They are the kindest and most wonderful art, the most beautiful art of the world. When the paintings in the Ajanta Caves were rediscovered by the Archaeological Survey of India or the ASI, they were found in a state that was nearly unsalvageable. And maybe in another era of human history, they might well have remained that way. Historians and archaeologists stumbling upon paintings or artifacts that are barely surviving is fairly common. The passage of time has quite an effect on things from the past, especially when that time means thousands of years. So any recognizability becomes a blessing. Now, not only were these paintings close to being destroyed, but they were also located deep into the caves where natural light was hard to come by. The ASI, though, had very strict rules for visitors. No artificial lights would be used to try and sneak a peek at the paintings as they'd cause further damage to them. Fortuitously, around the same time, Bell had mastered a technique of low-light photography that could capture minute details with a higher luminosity of colour. The ASI took notice. They immediately called for Bell to come in and use his technique to capture whatever was left of the paintings deep in the Ajanta Caves. The idea was to document the paintings before they would become lost forever. Behel couldn't let go of such an opportunity. The Archaeological Survey of India would not allow the use of uh, strong uh, or clear lights of the whole colour spectrum. They used only orangish light inside the caves. So these great paintings were actually very largely unseen and not properly seen. So this was brought to my attention in 1990 because of my technique of low-light photography. And in 1991, and in, again in 1992, 
both occasions separately i uh, photographed uh, all the paintings in the caves it was a great moment and when uh, i uh, showed these photographs to the director general of the archaeological survey of india he uh, wrote me a letter to say that i had conquered the darkness of the caves bell immediately knew the significance of what he had captured naturally the art lover in him wanted to restore them to their original glory and so he began a journey of restoring them he began by using the most rudimentary software on the internet a task frustrating even on today's computers let alone those bulky mammoths we called desktop machines in the 90s but despite his remarkable efforts it still needed that one extra push enter sapio analytics there is a lot of a uh, lot of knowledge needed historical knowledge where you should be able to understand okay that this picture belongs to this time of the uh, of the you know like this particular bc this particular time and at this time this is the kind of uh, depiction that was happening on artworks this is ashwin shrivastav the ceo of sapio analytics a company dedicated to restoring ancient indian artworks by using artificial intelligence and machine learning and he'll be the first to tell you how grateful he and his company are to the work that behel and others like him have done it was shrivastav a huge fan of behel's work who approached him to ask if he could collaborate with him he wanted to take the art of restoration into the 21st century with the express desire to show to the world how rich how complex and how deeply compassionate ancient artwork from india is so sapio analytics picked up behel's photographs of the ajanta paintings and asked can we bring these tattered paintings back to life shivastava had always been an ai entrepreneur but very early on he felt it was necessary to expand ai's use to move beyond the generic uses that we see in most places he wanted to use computational power to solve more niche problems that could have massive impacts for instance art or heritage restoration coming specifically to uh, heritage restoration it was very clear to us that uh, you know it was like a calling i would say that once you see ajanta caves once you see those works uh, especially the works which have been reproduced through the uh, you know through vinayabhan uh, once you see those works and then you spend let's say one hour just seeing one painting you will see that there is an element of consciousness within you that is improving that's what we genuinely felt that there is these works have the power to elevate human consciousness and such important works which can elevate human consciousness if these works are not seen in their true glory in their true Uh, no restored form it will be a big disservice to humanity so the point was very clear that okay we are experts in ai ml we have been doing it for so many reasons uh why not use that expertise towards solving something which will uh, literally you know serve many generations to come for them to pull off this massive feat shrivastava and his team were very aware of how precise their machine learning models would have to be With guidance from Bell, these tech boys were now learning about the subtle nuances of fine arts, but how each brush stroke is representative of maybe a mood, 
of how certain lines could communicate a time period, how the location of a figure's pupils could express a thousand stories, and how colors could change the entire meaning of a painting. When restoring ancient works, it becomes doubly important to ensure that none of this is affected, that none of this is changed. A single error and the meaning of the painting, its impact and its significance instantly vanishes. So that's what we realize it has to be something deeper than that. So it has to be divided into multiple stages. Uh, the first stage in our, on, or based on our analysis was, to, was the identification of objects. If we are able to go very deep and able to identify every single aspect of the painting and categorize it into objects. For example, pupil is a separate object. The rest of the part of the eye is a separate object. Strand of the hair is a separate object. A particular kind of bead on a jewelry is a separate object. And if you're able to kind of identify all sets of objects on the picture, then the possibility of working on each of these objects in terms of restoration can be easy. So object restoration, of, sorry, object identification was one of the key tasks. And for that, again, we used multiple uh, machine learning models. By creating a machine learning model that identified these objects separately, down to the minutest details, Sapio's model created a solid base for which restoration could happen. And it wasn't just objects that had to be identified, but these models also had to recognize what the damaged part of the paintings were. They had to avoid running the risk of AI working and restoring something that wasn't really damaged. And then the next step is the restoration part. Now, restoration typically in our work happens in two stages. Uh, one is we simply use pix2pix GAN and uh, some other models around that GAN models to basically do the first round of restoration, which as expected will not give the right kind of outputs. But then we go back and then we apply structured learning onto the model where uh, based on each object, there are multiple parameters connected, which further enhances what needs to be done on each of these objects. And then further uh, modeling is done to come to the uh, each object level restoration, which effectively leads to the overall restoration. The data that these models were learning from was the manual work that Behel had done. What I'm trying to say is that the human eye is central to getting restoration of any artwork right. And without that, these models won't work very well. Slowly, over a period of six months, one by one, the first four paintings were brought to life. It was akin to magic. Then once these paintings were brought to life, they were taken to Svalbard in October 2020. They were sent digitally on extremely secure links and then converted into files that couldn't be tampered with, either by humans or by time. Art was thus rescued for generations and generations to witness. Over time, as the people at Sapio constantly work on improving their algorithms, the six months it used to take them to restore a painting has dropped significantly. This kind of restoration completely changes how we study history, doesn't it? It could potentially eliminate the guesswork involved, especially in the case of representations in paintings and sculptures, and help paint a clearer picture of what the past looked like. But the work that Binoy, K. Bell and Sapio Analytics have done with the cave paintings in the Ajanta Caves is also symbolic of how much of history is still in the dark for us. The caves themselves were discovered only around 150 years ago, so there's so much more that's either not been discovered or has been discovered 
but has been indecipherable so far. And this leads me quite nicely into our next section. Today, AI is helping us reconstruct the past in ways we haven't seen before. Microsoft, for example, has machines reconstructing the ancient city of Olympia for users to explore. Using data from historians, books, paintings and images, the machine is able to digitally reconstruct a realistic depiction of what the city once looked like. Not only that, it allows us to walk its streets and experience the city like it once was. Oh, it's technology that's rather incredible. Closer home. We've known and learnt about the Indus Valley civilization for many, many years now. They're staple chapters in our history textbooks, and we know enough about the innovations they heralded and the large cities they built. Curiously, though, we've never ever been able to figure out their script. Archaeologists and historians have recovered tons and tons of texts from that time period, but nobody so far has been able to crack the code and learn the language yet. For the longest time, it was even dismissed as a fool's chase. A famous scientific paper even made the claim that the codes discovered were not a language at all. But, and here's the interesting bit, artificial intelligence seems to disagree. I want to introduce you to Professor Ronajoy Adhikari. He's an associate professor at the University of Cambridge in the Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics Department. If the mere name of the field sounds intimidating to you, also know that it's the exact same department and the exact same college where the great Professor Stephen Hawking worked. Anyway, here's Professor Adhikari on the challenges with deciphering the Indus script. The Indus script poses certain special problems as um, sort of a lang as a sort of script which needs to be deciphered and the special problems are that you know we don't know what language it encodes i mean even after 100 120 years of study there's still controversy about whether it was a language of the um, of the dravidian family of languages whether it was a mundaric language family or whether it was a uh, uh, sort of Indo-European language family, there's still disagreement among scholars. Professor Adhikari owes a lot of his research to the work of renowned epigraphist Airavatam Mahadevan, whose lectures he regularly attended. Mahadevan was the first to crack the Tamil Brahmi script, which was also deemed impossible for several years in academic circles. He had turned his attention towards the Indus Valley script, but unfortunately, he passed away in 2018. Professor Adhikari, though, decided to continue on this difficult path. Curiously, but also at the same time, unsurprisingly, the weapon he chose to forge his way forward with was mathematics. What I found particularly um, scientific about uh, Mahadevan's approach was that he didn't really make an assumption about what the underlying language was. And what he did instead was to study the structural aspects of the Indus script. How, if it were a language, of course, we would have to have certain inherent structures. And this is sort of falling back on what I spoke earlier about um, thinking of language as a generative grammar. So you know, there are certain rules and those rules generate the, the entire corpus of the language. Uh, Madhavan took that approach. Um, he said that, well, I don't really know what language the Indus script is encoding, so let me make an assumption 
that it's just a generic language and what can i say about it and he made certain very acute observations and it to me what appeared what was very inspiring was that these observations were so quantitative and so ripe for mathematization that we could really just take those ideas and with just a little bit of work we could turn it into sort of quantifiable mathematics what he's saying is that if you strip language any language to its bare bones all they end up with are a set of rules and within these rules lie certain patterns that one can identify for example in the english language more often than not the letter q will be followed by the letter u in most words so identifying such patterns became the key to solving the mystery of the indus valley script and this is what eventually drove professor adhikari into building an ai model that helped recognize this he goes into a little more detail here about the model he used it's known as the markov chain model a markov chain model is basically a rule for generating the next symbol in a sequence of symbols so supposing i have english language i have a letter let's say cat so i say well c and i must have a rule once i've chosen c what's the next letter going to be right and once i've chosen the next letter what's the next letter going to be and so on and when do i put a full stop because that's when we have a full word so you know if i start with c i know that in in english it's very very unlikely that the next letter is going to be z because you know c z doesn't really sound like english but if i start with c and i put a a that sounds more like english c a and then the next letter i'd probably think well it could be a t and that would be cat it could be an n that could be can it could be a b it could be cab so you know there are certain frequencies which are much more likely than other frequencies so if i start with a c it's much more likely that there'll be a a or maybe a o and once i've chosen those things maybe a a, a t or a b or and so on so this sort of the fact that in any language once you've chosen a token so a token could be a letter or a word or whatever that the no, next token cannot be chosen arbitrarily but is kind of constrained by the language itself is something that you know is present in all languages and you try to like to build a model for this so the simplest way of building this model is called a markov chain and what that means is that we say that once we've chosen a letter I'll give you a probability for what the next letter is going to be. It's an ingenious way of getting around the problem. You might not be able to identify what the script means, but you can at the very least start with establishing that it is indeed a language. How? By placing it within the rules of universal grammar and syntax and seeing if it fits right. And of course, the Indus script did. Adhikari and his team input all the signs and symbols that Mahadev and earlier found and compiled from the Indus Valley excavations. They then identified that it fit within the Markov chain and this became a significant step towards deciphering the script itself and also helped researchers learn so much more about our ancestors from ancient history. Right. So far we've been looking at how AI has been utilized to bring the past closer to us or to bring accuracy to our study of history for the large and lofty purpose of studying humanity itself but now i want to look forward i want to look at how ai is being used to shape our future 
Stay with me. In 2018, a painting was put up for auction at Christie's in New York. It was an oddly shaped work of art, even though it was supposedly a portrait of one Edmund Bellamy. Bellamy in the painting is dressed in what looks like 19th century clothing, a black overcoat with white collars jutting out from under his neck. And he seems to be staring straight at you, albeit with a very blurry, slightly washed out face. To be frank with you, the painting seems incomplete. The edges of the canvas seem unused and Bellamy's face itself seems to be missing an identifiable nose. But this painting sold for $432,000. What is more intriguing though is the sign-off on the painting. On the bottom right-hand corner, the standard location where painters sign their names to ensure that people know it's them, there was signage that looked less like a name and more like a math equation. Are you as confused as I was when I first read about this? Well, the reason the signage resembled a math equation was because it was a computer who painted this painting. Yes! A trio of 25-year-old French students who called themselves Obvious used the GAN algorithm that Ashwin Srivastava from Sapio Analytics had earlier spoken about to create a series of portraits that depicted the fictional Bellamy family. And then they created a storm. In fact, this is becoming more and more commonplace in different ways and forms. To restore paintings and digitize history is one thing. But for AI to create original works of art? It might seem like a stretch for some. But not for people like the men from Obvious or even Fabin Rashid, closer to home. Rashid, along with collaborator Sliba Paul, worked with Microsoft to bring Ori Kathy, India's first ever AI poet. I'll put this one out there and say that no matter what you're trying to do, no. That's Rashid reciting a short haiku Ori Kathy developed. I'll repeat it here one more time. I'll put this one out there and say that no matter what you're trying to do, no. It's not exactly Shakespeare. But Aurea seemed to get the basics of creative construction right. Around 2018, uh, the end, I actually talked to uh, one of my friends and uh, engineer, uh, artificial intelligence engineer, machine learning engineer, Sliba Paul, uh, on a project uh, which uh, was related to how we could think of a social media entity creating art on itself and posting uh, to the social media. And what we uh, nailed down to was uh, having poetry uh, written by the uh, mm, uh, written by the AI creator, uh, which is uh, based out of a, a large data set of uh, haikus. And from this poetry, uh, images will be trained and styled uh, based on some of the machine learning algorithms. Aurea Cathy's Instagram page, which still exists for those who want to see it, posted AI-generated poetry and imagery for an entire year. But Rashid will be the first to admit that a lot of Aurea's poetry wasn't necessarily coherent. It's still a long way away from that, but it was an eye-opening experiment into how human beings could collaborate with AI to create art. And there are others like Rashid too. For example, Sahaj Rahal. Rahal's work is interested in using AI to see how we can speak to the past 
and to the future. But what is really interesting is how he speaks about AI. It's not a machine. It's not just a technology. It's another, like he says, a non-human being. And we should treat it as such. Here, the game kind of changes entirely. Like, you know, uh, it sort of becomes an expansion of the mind with, you know, in, in sort of like a uh, collaboration with other minds, essentially. A, a simpler way of kind of describing this would be um, AI is on the verge of thought, right? So, uh, say if you were to think of artificial intelligence as an artistic collaborator, that that thing is now no longer just a paintbrush, but uh, or you know a tool. It's sort of occupying the space between being a tool and a collaborator at the same time, uh, and that kind of you know kind of opens up the uh, the game, the space for making art on a whole different level. To live is to be artful, you know. Uh, it requires a certain amount of cunning. It requires a certain amount of like intelligence. It requires a certain amount of creativity that we all have the capacity for. And this is not something that's just limited to you know. Um, we already have non-human forms of intelligence that make art. You know that that precede AI. Like you know, I mean, you like say for example, elephants have burial rituals, right? Like that. That is a deeply kind of ceremonial ritual act. Uh, birds sing. Uh, that that's again creativity right there. Perhaps the broader idea is to start seeing AI as a collaborator and not as competition. This is at the heart of understanding how AI and culture can move ahead together. Machine learning algorithms help make human processes a lot more precise and a lot quicker. But machine learning algorithms don't exist without input from human beings. It's a constant process of give and take. And maybe it'll take a while for a lot of us to see AI the way someone like Rahal does. But it seems like the best way forward. The bogey of AI being a scary thing, which is how mainstream movies and literature depicted, is being done away with. In this collaboration with culture, AI is building itself a new reputation in the modern world, that of a fellow being equally invested in preserving all that we have. It marks a new dawn for artificial intelligence and we are extremely fortunate to be present for it. I'm Harsha Bhogle and you've been listening to Paradigm Shift, a podcast produced by Microsoft India in association with ATS Studio. Gaurav Vaz is our executive producer and Archana Nathan is our producer. This podcast was made possible by the amazing team at Microsoft India, including Charu Sharma, Rohini Srivatsa, Rajat Agarwal, Sriram Parthasarthi, and Soman Napalakanda. Charu and Sri helped structure and shape the podcast with their thoughtful feedback and helping us connect the various dots. This episode was researched and written by Prithvir Solanki. Prithvir has also conducted all the interviews you heard. The title track, sound design and background score for this podcast was created by Nikhil Rao and Abhijit Nath. All clips and voices used in this podcast are owned by the original creators and we have provided links to the sources in our show notes. To read full transcripts of our episodes and additional information about the podcast, follow the link in our show notes.